Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a successful business, I've met directly or indirectly many successful people from entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes someone successful? Do we even know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create it for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Carol Sikora is a British physician who specialises in oncology. He graduated from Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, where he earned a double first and went on to receive his PhD at Stanford University. His extensive career has seen him work in numerous senior positions, including Chief of the Cancer Programme at the World Health Organization, Vice President of Global Clinical Research and Oncology at the Pharmacia Corporation, and a member of the UK's Health Department's Expert Advisory Group on Cancer. Currently, he's Medical Director of Proton Partners, a company developing proton cancer therapies in the UK, and he's also Dean of the University of Buckingham's Medical School. Quite a CV. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our special guest today, Carol Sikora. Carol, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, on a personal note, since I lost my father and my stepfather from cancer, I've been particularly interested in speaking to you. So thank you so much for taking the time and making the effort to join us. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Um, if I may, since we only have about half an hour to have a, a chat and find out all about you, could I start just by asking you a little bit about yourself? You know, where does... Where's Carol Sikora from as a name, for example? So my father came over from Poland during the war as a, a captain in the Polish army, ended up in Scotland, Saturday night officers dance, met my mother, and that's it. Wow. I'm an only child and uh, no brothers or sisters. And uh, it's strange having a name like Carol, teased at school, of course, and uh, a funny name like Sikora. But uh, I remember when I went to medical school, this shows how much times have changed. Uh, the, the dean said... What kind of name is that? Just like that. Imagine doing it now. You'd be thrown out. <laughs> my mum's name's Carol, actually, and my, right? my family also settles in Scotland. We have loads in common. Um, so this, and I also went to Corpus Christi School. How bizarre oh, is that? There you so, go. Um, loads and loads of common. Um, so a little bit about your background. Where did right. you grow up? So um, I grew up into... in Stafford in the Midlands. My father was an engineer, worked for English Electric at the time there. And happy memories, state school. Uh, Corporation Street County Primary. It was great, great fun. It was my happiest time, I think. Uh, came to London uh, and had a scholarship to Dulwich College and then went to Cambridge and hated school, just hated it. Loved university, loved primary school, just hated the middle bit. I suppose it's growing up. Lots of people do that. Yeah. And, and what particularly did you love about university that you didn't particularly like about The freedom school? away from my mother. <laughs> she was a tyrant. She was an infant school teacher and bullied me, uh, intellectually bullied me to yeah. work. I'd come home in the school holidays from Cambridge and she said, have you got work to do? I said, no, no, I've got no work to do. You must have work to do. Get some work to do. I mean, school work, you know, yeah. book work. And I said, it's not quite like that. You didn't have to work 24-7, but uh, she didn't believe me. So um, what's really interesting is I don't suppose too many people would have your kind of CV having really hated school because, you know, yeah. most of us would associate... Um, all you, you've achieved in your career um, with with a great deal of intellect, you know, academia. W when did you discover your desire or your your wish to go into 
medical practice? Very early age. I was about nine and uh, I thought doing medicine would be quite fun. And uh, and then gradually <coughs> I got more and more interested in the whole thing. And then when I was 16, my father died of cancer. And so I used to go to the Brompton Hospital and wander up there and see him. And, and it, was, it was so badly handled in those days. Not that it's always well handled today, but it was really badly. The communication was really poor. And the attitude was very much, don't say anything to anybody. Don't mention the C word. There was nothing, no information. Of course, there was no Google. And uh, so it, was, it looked like a fascinating disease. And that confirmed that I actually wanted to do oncology. So it's rather unusual at the age of 16, wanting to do oncology. It wasn't some sort of emotional vengeance for my father. It was just, it was, seemed a very interesting problem that was almost certainly, I thought at the time, completely soluble. Mm. But then most of us did then. Can you dispel a myth for us before we go any yeah. further? Um, now, there's this conspiracy theory that, of course, um, there is a cure for cancer and uh, the government are burying it. HMRC don't want us to know about it because too much revenue is generated from, um, you know, the process that all these companies, pharmaceutical companies go through. What's your... <laughs> What's your position on that one? No, I've, I've read articles on it. I've spoken to people that genuinely believe there's a conspiracy and the cure for cancer is out there. It's actually very cheap uh, and it's, it doesn't have any side effects. I, I would just say it's an, a myth. Um, I've not seen anything to suggest that's really the case amongst the patients I've seen uh, over the last 50 years. And uh, I think it's a nice idea. Conspiracy stories uh, abound in cancer, whether it's getting a drug, breakthrough drugs, all sorts of things. The best cancer stories for the media are some very expensive drug that no one can get hold of. And that just creates the story, especially in a child. And uh, time and time again, we see that. We see that a little bit with proton therapy, the, the work I'm involved in now. Uh, and there is no magic panacea. If there was, we'd all be doing yeah. it. So let's talk then about um, what you're doing now and, and uh, proton therapy. Tell us what that means Okay. Um, if you would, Listen, there's a lot of people listening that have no idea what we're talking about. So. Okay. so I've been a consultant in the NHS for 40 years now. I was very young when I started. I'm now very old. And uh, what's happened over the last 40 years is we're getting much more precise about how we deliver cancer therapy of all sorts of so surgery, much smaller operations, sometimes with robotics, uh, much more precise and sparing normal tissue. Exactly the same with radiotherapy and with chemotherapy, we're predicting which patients to give the right drug to. So all precision. In radiotherapy, which is what proton therapy is, the problem is we damage the surrounding normal tissues. There's no way of avoiding them. Protons are similar to conventional radiotherapy, but they stop. So if I fired a proton beam at you into your tummy, a proton beam would stop in there. All the energy would be concentrated. And if you had a cancer in your abdomen, it could concentrate in that. If we use conventional radiation, a lot of it would come out the other side. And on its way, it would damage normal tissues that don't really want to radiate. So that's the attraction of protons. The downside, it's a big machine, it's complex, and of course, it's expensive. It's probably about three times as much to give proton therapy than conventional. Some people say, if you had, if it was the same price, you'd be using it today. And that's true. If it was the same price, we'd not be talking about it. We'd just be doing it. And mm. all sorts of inventions in medicine are like that. Once money comes in, once it's such a big discrepancy between the new and the old, it's very difficult. You have to select the cases to show benefit. And, so, and that's where we are at the moment. Right. 
So a, a long way to go, obviously. A long, we're building a network of five centres, which would treat roughly uh, 10% of people having radiotherapy. Uh, and I think Europe's doing the same. You know, I, I'm fairly controversial with the NHS. Uh, NHS is a great institution, but it's not a religion. And people have this religious feel to it. You know, politicians won't criticise it. They just know they can't. And, you know, the staff, of course, are wonderful. We agree there, but there are faults in it. And we all know there are faults, but no one's willing to speak out. And with proton therapy, the fault was that in 2007, the plan was to treat 1% of all patients having radiotherapy with protons. And the machines are still not built yet, 10 years on. Um, the two machines that are coming, one will open later this year in Manchester and the other one probably three or four years. I mean, there's no reason it should take 12 years to build a proton machine, but that's the way the system works. Mm. So I think the future is going to be about much more entrepreneurial attitude and of course what the NHS doesn't encourage is entrepreneurship it pretends it does a bit and we have these contests that and a British medical journal organized but it's all very tokenism it doesn't allow people to sort of come up with innovation ideas not just of uh, gadgets but whole systems of care and uh, if you look at how badly we've enveloped, uh, addressed IT issues in the NHS, you can see. I mean, you, can't, you can get an easy ticket now to go to Paris in, in a couple of hours, but you can't get a GP appointment on your, small, your, your phone. Yeah, that's, um, that's very well put, actually. I think a lot of people will share that view with you. Uh, Carol, I have to ask you this, um, because, only because it was in the press fairly recently. In respect to proton therapy, the, 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 the story that broke about the father... Um, I believe, from memory, the Interpol arrest warrant because he wanted to take his son out of the country, Prague, I believe. Um, tell us about that, you know, what happened. It was a fascinating piece of bad communication between the hospital at Southampton and the parents of the child who was four years old at the time, had a brain tumour, needed radiotherapy, protons were available in Prague. Parents were convinced they should go there. They argued with the doctor. The doctor said there's no point. And uh, so they, they just took the boy out of the hospital without telling anybody. And so the police were contacted. Interpol arrest warrant was handled out. And the parents were arrested in Barcelona where they had a holiday flat on the way to Prague to get treatment. Boy got treated, currently very well, no problems. And indeed, the type of rare type of tumour he has has now been added to the list of NHS indicators for for proton therapy abroad. So uh, the parents were sort of right in the end. It was just a rather barbaric way to arrest them when they've got this sick child with them. Uh, and everyone was embarrassed. You could see, I remember seeing the, the police inspector uh, giving an interview on, on television. He was embarrassed by all this. It was clearly a cock-up of communication. Better ways to handle this sort of thing must be better. So you've obviously given uh, such an extensive uh career you um it would be fair to say carol have seen the best and worst of the nhs over a long period of time yeah. you've seen um development in all kinds of medical treatment Let, let's just for the moment uh, refer to proton therapy as conventionalist yep. and let's talk about alternative therapies because there's a lot of people out there that advocate well you know if you just have a positive mind um you can overcome you know all sorts what's your, what's your view when people say you know, I'm going to forego the conventional treatment and I'm going to seek alternative. Does it work in your experience? Is there a time and a place? 
It's a very interesting question. I was fascinated by it 20 years ago. And we actually had a programme of complementary medicine that I set up at Hammersmith in conjunction with a group at Bristol, a Bristol Cancer Help Centre. And what it does is give people hope. It gives people something to do for themselves. The worst thing for the question the cancer patients ask me is, what can I do to help myself? And the real answer from a medical viewpoint is absolutely nothing. Just turn up when you're told <laughs> and have the x-rays. Well, that's not a very nice thing to be told. And study after study shows if you give people something to do, they embrace the whole thing psychologically. Going on a cancer journey is quite a, a ride for some people emotionally and psychologically. And so by in, encouraging them to do things, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, and people, different people like different things, reflexology, yoga, massage, um, meditation, all these things help people get around the fact. I mean, one day you're walking along the street perfectly normal, not thinking any medical cares. The next minute you've got a diagnosis of cancer with a potentially life-threatening situation. So having things you can do, things you can talk about is, is helpful. The problem with uh, clin clinical training and what we all, all doctors have is it's very, it tries to take the emotion out of it. And that's how you have to be non-emotional and not to get involved. So you can go home in the evening and forget about the whole thing. And some of my colleagues who've not been able to do that, and some people can't, don't stay in cancer. <clears throat> so I think going back to complementary medicine, does it cure cancer? Maybe now and again. I can't deny that there are some unusual results, but on the whole, no. What it does do is provide a much better backdrop to let the, the real medicine cure people. I mean, this is a million dollar question. I know respectfully you don't have the answer, but how much does stress, you know, a lot of people listening are uh, perhaps thinking about embarking on a career and it's not just about striving to achieve success, whatever that looks and feels like, but it's about trying to create that work-life balance. Um, and, and this is coming from a question, this is a question being asked by somebody who lives with stress all the time, one, one degree or another. Do, do, is there any evidence that supports this theory that stress plays a very important part in one's health? No. Um, some people need the stress to live and some people enjoy it. And that's the real problem. What's stressful for one person, not necessarily stressful for the other. If I had to ride a bike in London, I'd be totally stressed out because I, I've tried it and I just get so nervous. But other people just run me down with their bikes mm. out there. So I think it, it's very difficult to measure. Study after study has tried to look at stress and cancer. and There really isn't much evidence. And, you know, because of this variation in what's a stress, event. So you can look at very stressful things like bereavement, death of a child, all this sort of thing. Does that relate to cancer in, the, in subsequent years? And the really is, the evidence is very poor. So if you do feel, don't worry about being stressed, I would say. Very, I'm, it's feel, a healthy, a healthy approach. <laughs> um, so just again, talking about some of the amazing things that you've achieved, and you, you've alluded to this already, one of the biggest challenges in, you, in your life, in your working life, Carol, must be uh, dealing with people with uh, different degrees of cancer at different stages. And, and you talk about being emotionally quite detached. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. But emotionally <clears throat> quite detached. How, how on earth do you do that? I know there's a degree of training, right. but take a special kind of person to... No, I think it, it selects out people that can do it. And, uh, you know, just as certain other specialties select people that uh, want to do other things. And medicine is a very diverse career. So, you know, when the new medical students start, 
I tell them, don't, if, you, if, if, you, if you hate patients, there's a role for you in medicine. If you find you just can't stand talking to people, you can deal, be a pathologist and deal with dead people. You look at x-rays. There's something for everybody in medicine. It's a hugely diverse environment. And I think some people are good communicators, others aren't. You know, we spent a lot of time and effort on communication skills and training. I'm really not sure that it actually works very well. Some people can, can, can talk, others can't. Mm. Some people can deal with empathic um, r- relationships with a patient, others just can't do that. How, how do you deal yourself with being constantly exposed to people with cancer, getting to know them? Because that's inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. Particularly over treatment um, over, say, a sustained period, you get to know them. It's inevitable. How, how do you how do you deal with those challenges? Because, you you know, you've been very successful, but yeah. let's let's refer to that as, as one of the many challenges that you face. How do you deal with that day to day? It's very difficult when you treat someone, you know, and that's uh, I, two examples. One was my secretary's husband, who was a local GP, and she wanted me to treat him and had a very bad type of cancer and he subsequently passed away and it was just very difficult doing that <clears throat> and that was the wrong thing to do i should have said no i can't we're going to have to refer this on the other one is getting to know people that you know are inevitably going to die and getting to know them when as a friend and it's a very intelligent journalist in fact whose wife was pregnant with the first child and he wanted to survive to see the baby and i sort of tried to promise to him that we try and keep him going till then and we went around for dinner to his house. I, it was just awful, the whole thing. You realise we're getting with my wife. We're, you know, we got to know them a bit. And then he subsequently died, unfortunately, before the baby was born. And that, that's what happens in cancer. So uh, very difficult. So avoiding these situations is what we all try and do. Mm. Earlier on, Carol, we talked about the NHS. I don't want to get too uh, controversial here, <laughs> but I think it's becoming a... Um, <coughs> a more immobile, uh, inflexible kind of a monster. Do you, do you see a day when we have a, a privatised NHS or something alternative? I mean, what's the future of the NHS? Because there's a lot of people out there at the moment thinking, you know, do we go down the fully privatised health insurance, medical insurance route? The NHS needs to be changed in some respects. It has so many great qualities, as you, as you alluded to earlier, but... What's the future of the NHS, in your opinion? What people really love about the NHS is what's called universality. Everyone's going to get treated. And that you have to preserve. And all of Europe has that. So it's nothing to do with the NHS and nothing to do with Britain. Everything else, the systems, the way it operates, the trusts, the hospitals, the GPs, this is all... Uh, process and that could be changed. <clears throat> I think we've got all sorts of problems and the biggest challenge facing society is people over my age. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm working, most people of my age are not working and they're enjoying themselves, but they're also going to get ill and they're going to, their costs of their illness are going to go up and up as we go. So your generation is going to pay, if you have an NHS only, your generation is going to have to pay for all my healthcare needs, which are going to be much more expensive than they were when I was paying my taxes at the full. So I think the problem we've got is some other mechanism, transaction has got to come. So retain the universality, which is what the voters love and the politicians love, but look at the way, make it efficient and make access to care much more efficient because access is complex and people can't get to see their GPs when they do, they're in a queue to wait to get tests and so on. All that can be changed. And um, it's, it's a, when I was a young doctor, it was fun. It was great. No one counted the costs because nothing cost anything. 
everything. Now, everything costs. You know, the scan costs £5,000, some of the scans we do. Uh, do you really need to have that? Can we look at another way? So rationing abounds, basically. Mm. Do you encourage, therefore, people to consider um, insuring themselves? Because that seems to be the way America is going, for example. I, I think the, the way forward is some sort of mixture. So, you, you know, if you get run over in the street, it's all free and it's taken yeah. care of. You have a baby, the same. But if, if it's something that's long-term, some sort of contribution has to come from somewhere, mm. from the patient. And, uh, you know, what I tell people health insurance in the current system at the moment in the UK is probably not worth taking if you're over 50 because the premiums, are, unless you get it free from work, because the premiums are so high. Better just to keep five, ten thousand pounds in a little pot. And if you have uh, need a knee operation, get it done privately. Uh, but uh, and use the NHS when you can, after all, you've paid your taxes. But it is a system that is it's unbelievable what, what you see going on to save money now. Yeah. And, and on that subject then, and, and going back to your, your love, your current love, passion, proton therapy, something you obviously believe in, um, do, you, do you see the day coming when that becomes more affordable? Because it seems to me from what you've said so far, it's out of the reach financially of many people. It is, and the cost of proton treatment would be about £50,000, which is, for most people, difficult to quickly get, unless you sell cars. or mm -hmm. in my car, you wouldn't get £50,000 for, I can assure you, but you get a mortgage on the house and that sort of thing. That, that takes time and emotion and so on. So I think... Uh, one has to have some sort of insurance scheme, whether it's public or private, doesn't really matter. What we've done with Proton Part is a private company, City Investment, but the idea is very much the NHS get a, a discounted rate on it for patients with the indication that they'll they'll treat. Now, not everyone will get treated by the NHS, whereas in the private sector, the insurance companies have a much broader range of indications. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you'll self-pay, you're your own boss, and that's the ultimate of healthcare. And and tell us about the success you've had with proton therapy. So we only opened in April uh, this year, April 18 in Newport. We're building five centres in the UK and we've treated about 20 patients now. And it's all, I mean, it's early days, but it's all gone very smoothly. Side effects are minimal. And that's the beauty of it compared to conventional radiotherapy. It takes the same time. Uh, it's obviously, you, you have to go to where the centre is. At the moment, with only one centre, you have to go to Wales. It's not a bad place, Wales. And... No, <laughs> Uh, and it's, the Gower is very beautiful. And uh, uh, there's no doubt that at, when we get the network up, which would be like next year, we'll have four centres open. It'll be a lot easier for people. So I want to ask you, Carol, if I may, um, you know, you, you clearly are a very inspiring man. You've achieved an awful lot. Who inspires you? Is, is it? I mean, there's obviously people you follow through your career. Sure. Um, tell us about the people that you kind of look up to. So two people, one guy called Louis Pasteur, who actually wasn't a doctor. I didn't realise that at the time, but uh, he was a biologist in France and he discovered the anthrax bug. And uh, I remember reading about him and he was a microbiologist, really. And the second was Sam Cole, who was my school teacher in biology at my secondary school. So although I didn't like the school, I liked this guy. And he made biology really fascinating. And uh, I think that as teachers have a profound influence on people in terms, not I don't mean a career choice, but just on what they want to aspire to later on in life. And so I think some of my teachers were very good at that. Let's find out a little bit more about you, if we may, because you've been very modest and kind of skirting around the edges. Uh, your upbringing, we, we know all about that, but um, your, your career, where you've gone down many paths. Mm. 
Um, what parts of what you've done have you really enjoyed? So I enjoyed being a young doctor. That was just tremendous fun. And you don't have the politics and to deal with difficult people. I remember looking about a course on conflict at work. I said, how could there be conflict at work? It's just fun. And I think I see that in a lot of young doctors. They're enjoying themselves. Now it's much more bureaucratized and some of them online all the time. Uh, whereas in those days, we didn't have to do that. I think... Uh, after realising I wanted to do cancer at an early age made it easy. And that my advice to everybody in medicine, find out what you want to do early and then stick with it. Don't float around. If you don't know what you want to do, think and then plan a career for you. And most people that have been successful in their careers have gone down a straight track and are not gone into multiple things. Uh, the other thing I enjoy is travelling, uh, seeing medicine, especially cancer medicine, interpreted through different cultures. Rich, poor, doesn't matter, black, white, doesn't matter where you go, it's all different. So you're doing the same thing, but in a different culture, and the way in which the patients are being handled, talked to, is very different in different mm -hmm. places. Japan, fascinating. They still, in many places, don't tell cancer patients they have cancer in Japan. Unbelievable. Wow. And 40 years ago, we were doing that here, but now everyone gets told. Whereas in Japan, they, they, they don't do it. And uh, it's a much more hierarchical system. The doctor sitting behind the big desk, and uh, as we used to do. Yeah. Now we, we, we've adopted uh, a coffee morning consultation which the idea is you have a table and there's no couches or anything and you just drink coffee. The trouble is if you're in the NHS for the morning and seeing 20 patients, that's 20 cups of coffee you've got to drink. It's not possible for the doctor to drink 20 cups of coffee without exploding. But the idea is that healthcare is much more uh, a balanced conversation about what the options are, what's likely to happen and so on. Uh, whereas in the past, we didn't do that. Mm. I noticed you're drinking black coffee today, Carol. So it's obviously, it's, it has medicinal benefits. It, it does. It does. Good for you. Uh, I, I, I must admit, you and I share the love of that. So um, uh, if you would just talk to us a little bit about um, where you see the business that you're currently involved in going. Um, this, is a, this is a huge question. Do you, do you see a day in your lifetime, my lifetime, do you see a cure for cancer? I mean, we're already starting to see it, aren't we, in some respects. But do you see that happening sooner rather than later, or is it, or do we still have a long way to go? I mean, I look back at the past 40 years, and when I started, uh, around 35% of people with cancer were cured, and now it's 52% in, in the Western world. And that figure will go up, and you don't see it happening. It's not single events that are making it. It's better diagnostic, better scans, better molecular markers and so on, and obviously more drugs and other treatments, protons, a small contribution and so on. So all moves forward. Will we all ever have a day with a world without cancer, which is going to be the strap line of the, the UK's cancer charity, but they decided it's unrealistic to have a world without cancer. And uh, because there will always be one, it's a statistical disease. However much you do, there's always going to be a cell that escapes and becomes aberrant, a rogue cell, a terrorist, or whatever you like, the enemy within, and that's going to become a cancer. So unlikely you can reduce it, you can have preventive strategies, you can try and get better screening and get it earlier, and then this personalised approach to cancer treatment, but you'll probably never get rid of it completely, and probably a few people still will die from cancer, but it'll be much less, and you'll push it to later age. And just if you take prostate cancer, most men with prostate cancer are over 70, and 
most men, even though they have the disease spread in the, around the body, uh, can survive 10 or 15 years. So you're taking them from the age of 70 to 85, which is their normal lifespan anyway. So what you're doing is pushing it further into older age, and that's great. You've just touched on two uh, important points, so I'll ask you two more questions in turn. First of all, what do you say to people who say, and I've raised lots of money for cancer charities over the years because of my experience with my father and my stepfather, what do you say to people who say, well, you know, it's all well and good raising money for charity, but, you know, all of that money goes in administration costs and, and the beneficiaries never see any of it. What do you see to pay? Is it important that we go on raising, we're aware of the need for, for funding and should people you know, dig deep and, and support those charities? I mean, the cancer charities in Britain have really done a lot to support, not just the care of patients, such as the supportive charity like Macmillan, but also the, <coughs> the big research charities have done a lot. I mean, it's always very difficult. I get asked by patients, they'd like to leave money to, which charity should they leave it to? The big charities probably have less overheads, although they have huge and there's all controversy about how much they pay the chief executive, all this sort of noise that comes out of the, from the critics. The trouble for the little charities they're not efficient because you've got to have the same overheads running the system and audit and accounts and all the rest of it as a big charity so i think the big charities are probably the better ones to support and uh, should we be doing it yeah well what else are we going to spend our money on i yeah, think it, it's uh, that's yeah. an interesting point you've just made because i think most people would feel the opposite way yeah um the uninitiated who would think well the smaller ones are the ones worth supporting because it finds its way to the end user, if you like. The other question I wanted to ask you based on what you just said a moment ago, Carol, was um, a lot of people that are listening to these podcasts are, you know, entrepreneurial, they're, they're setting out on the road to life or they're already some way down. A lot of people, myself included, sometimes ignore our own health. You know, we get busy. There's other things that are on our priority list. Um, what advice do you give to people or would you give to people listening uh, in terms of taking care of themselves, how often should you go for health checks? For example, right. what should you do in order to stay the right side of the line? For want a better expression. I, the most important thing, not just for cancer but for anything, is if you have some symptoms, or well, doesn't matter where in the body, something seems wrong and it persists and it gets worse. Do something. Don't wait. Don't think it's going to go away. You'll wake up and it'll all be gone. If it's been there for more than two weeks, go and get some. Get just a GP or somewhere. Get help. And there are plenty of outlets now you can go to and it's not expensive to get things checked out. <clears throat> I think the, the trouble is people do ignore symptoms and, uh, and at their peril, really. So, but a lot of uh, people that are very successful, um, I know they go for expensive uh, uh, whole body scans and so on. There's no evidence it really does any good. It's just being aware of your own body when something goes wrong. And we're much better at it than we were 40 years ago, because then people, you know, you could get to see your GP then. That was the one good thing. But, you know, we tended to, men are much better at denying that ill than, than women always. And, uh, you know, I think we've seen a big change in how it's, the approach has gone. So note to self, cancel a uh, full body scan every three years then. Cancel, cancel. It's <laughs> not worth the money. It'll it, it create more worries for you than it's worth. Right. Okay. Good to know. Thank you for that. I've, I've already got something out of today. Um, other notable achievements that, that, I mean, 
you've done you've done loads. I don't, I don't even know where to start. But other notable achievement. What what's next for you? I mean, is there a next? Yeah. Or are you just going to focus on what you're doing? <laughs> well, the, we we got the medical school up and running at Buckingham, and uh, uh, the first doctors graduate in June. So that's like a, and now we're going to pass it on to a proper dean of medicine, uh, a full time medical educationalist. And uh, what I enjoy about project getting them going, and then that's it. And that's that's worked. And obviously protons another year or two, and that'll be. I, I couldn't retire. I've got no no ambition to retire. Well, that was my, that was a question I, was, I had for you. <laughs> Nothing you know, to you do. You are, if you don't mind me saying, you, you look extraordinarily fit. Um, I don't know how old you are, but I've got a rough idea. You do look extremely fit. So what do you do? Because travel alone doesn't keep you fit, surely. What else do you do? So Are you a kind of a, do you observe any particular way of eating or exercising? No, I drink too much wine. <laughs> I think red wine is very good for you. No, in moderation. I think the the the, the problem is that I've got no hobbies. It's amazing. A, a lot of people are like me; they just have no hobbies, and they're terrified of retirement because what would you, what are you going to do? Mm. And you know, I don't want to do grandchildren care, child care with grandchildren. They're lovely. They're lovely, but they're not. As long as you not, hand them it's back. not my ambition to look after. <laughs> I'd rather pay someone to look after them. But uh, no, I think it, it's very very difficult in a society where you know people some people are retiring very early especially in healthcare in systems like the NHS where they feel they can't carry on in the NHS so a lot of my nearly all my colleagues have gone from from frontline work it's true that I'm not really in the front I do a clinic but it's it's there's no pressure in it whereas running a clinical service in the NHS or indeed anywhere is, is continual pressure mm-hmm. so I, I don't have that so I get the good bits of medicine without the bad bits just as I had when I was a young doctor any particular goals anything you still aspire to do in the extensive time you have left <laughs> I, I think you know, tr- trying to get decent cancer services, uh, you know, trying to enrich countries and poor countries. I think even here, it's it's the variability that's the real problem in healthcare and throughout. That no industry can sustain the variable in quality and access that you have in health systems, and it's it's ubiquitous all over the world. So trying to do something about that here. Uh, uh, and I think it's quite a few people like us that we're, we're getting together to see how we can make changes there. Uh, and it's a whole systems approach that's needed. And it's actually nothing to do with money. It's the systems are all there. The, mm. the tools are there. They're just not being used effectively. Uh, a question we ask all our guests, Carol. So I'm going to ask you. You don't get away with it, I'm afraid. Uh, and that is um, particularly uh, enjoyed speaking with you today. And uh, given that you are a man of considerable experience and all that you've achieved, probably a better answer from you than almost from anyone I can think of, really. Uh, let's imagine for a moment you're talking to a 15-year-old version of Carol Sakura, and you're giving this young boy some advice as he sets out on the path of life. What advice would you give that boy? I think the most important thing, the most important thing I did wrong, okay, was probably knocking the NHS, taking a system and saying, this is crap, Instead of saying, this needs a bit of improvement, that would have been a better way of dealing with the situation. I think that's the advice I'd give. Um, Being controversial is all right, but uh, there's an establishment. And if you rock the establishment, it doesn't matter in what you're doing, in medicine, in other structures, it's very difficult. If you're an entrepreneur, 
it's a little bit easier because it's so for now you have to have the idea how the business plan has to work and then you change the system from within if you like but in establishment systems like healthcare medicine you can't face it full on you have to go around the side and i should have done what i'm doing now protons and cancer partners and so on 20 years ago and that's my only regret not moving out earlier and forgetting no nhs wonderful we'll just create better systems to help it move along that would have been a smarter way of doing it the one thing i i have observed in the time we've been speaking today almost every answer you've given me you've given with a smile on your face you're clearly very passionate about what you do and you did talk about that earlier about that that need to do what you want to do, what you feel really passionate and hungry about. And that's clearly what's taken you to where you've got to in your career. Would that, would that be fair? That's fair, yeah. Um, so one final question, if I may. There's lots of people that, you know, for lots of different reasons, Carol, that will want to know more about you. So where do we find out about what you're doing? You know, is there, is there a website? Is there an email address? Is there anything that we need to know in order to find out more about Carol Sakura? Uh, on uh, on Google, you'll find it, carolsecora.com. Uh, but uh, I'm not very good about keeping it, but other people write stuff and uh, uh, I get quoted now and again. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's the way to find out. Thank you. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Um, thank you so much for all the pearls of wisdom and uh, a, a real insight into medicine, cancer treatment, the NHS and all the other things that go with it. So thank you and look forward to having you back with us at some point in the future. Thank you. That was the Sandro Forte podcast and my thanks to Carol Sakura, who was a really fascinating guest. There are many more guests joining me over the coming weeks, so please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some great tips on success. Remember, you can follow us on social media at Sandro's Podcast. That's Sandro's with an S, same on all channels. And we'd love to hear your stories, ideas, anecdotes, challenges, or whatever motivates you. So please remember to email me hello at sandrospodcast.com and if you can please leave a review on itunes so we know what you'd like more of in the future thank you